Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. We've begun very slowly to emerge from lockdown and the relative calm of a car-free, transport-free world that was forced upon us is already a thing of the past. Everywhere we turn, we hear of the need to seize the opportunity to build back better, to ensure we have a green and resilient recovery that does not lock in high polluting behaviours. And instead, we use the sustainable development goals and other measures to ensure the post-COVID world is better than the pre-COVID one, certainly for the planet, that is. However, as this episode was being recorded, we heard the Prime Minister call upon us to build, build, build our way out of the looming recession, just as he urged us to shop for Britain. None of this bodes well for a balanced, low-carbon return to normal. We do have an opportunity to do things differently, as the Committee on Climate Change's annual report to Parliament has stated quite forcefully, and I'm delighted to be able to discuss this report and its many recommendations with my guests today. Baroness Brown of Cambridge, Julia King, is Deputy Chair of the Committee on Climate Change and Chair of the Adaptation Committee. Julia is an engineer by training and has had an illustrious career spanning senior engineering and leadership roles in industry and academia. She was a non-executive director of the Green Investment Bank and led the King Review on Decarbonising Transport. She sits as a crossbench peer and is a member of the House of Lords European Select Committee, as well as being Chair of the Carbon Trust. Julia, welcome to Planet Board and thank you so much for joining us. Hello, it's nice to be here. Thanks. My second guest, Dr. James McGregor, is an environmental economist with the Ramble Group, an engineering, architecture and consultancy company founded in Denmark in 1945. He holds a doctorate in sustainable policymaking. He's an expert on climate policy and has more than 25 years experience enhancing sustainability in global, public, private and government sectors. James, thanks for joining us and welcome to the pod. Good afternoon, lovely to join in. So these are worrying times for many of us as we face an impending economic recession and the likelihood of rising unemployment. While surveys show that people don't want to go back to normal, the pressure on the economy to pollute its way out of financial turmoil is intense. That is why your report, Julia, is so timely. I wonder if I could start by asking you perhaps to outline some of the work of the committee for those Planet Pod listeners who may not be familiar with it. Well, thank you very much. Um, The Committee on Climate Change and indeed its um, Adaptation Committee were created by the Climate Change Act in 2008. Um, The role of the the main committee, it's the Mitigation Committee. Um, Its uh, first task, actually, was was to recommend the 80% target on reduction on emissions that went into legislation in the Climate Change Act, uh, the original Climate Change Act. Um, it's more recent. One of its more recent roles was to produce, at the beginning of last year, the report on how we might achieve net zero emissions in the UK, uh, and then which led to the government um, in June last year, so almost exactly a year ago, uh, the government making the one amendment that has been to the Climate Change Act, which has been to change the target from uh, 80% reduction to achieving net zero emissions by 2050. Um, so... The, the two really key roles of the mitigation committee, as I'll call it for simplicity, um, are to recommend the five yearly carbon budgets, which Parliament uh, is then, uh, then has to legislate. Uh, and we will be recommending the level of the sixth carbon budget, which would take us out to 2037. And we'll be doing that in December this year. And we are very much hoping that government will legislate, that parliament will legislate that very quickly to put us in a very strong influential position 
uh, before the COP. And that will be a very significant carbon budget because it'll be the first carbon budget that we have recommended since the, uh, the, the move of the 2050 target to net zero, which, which puts us on a, a steeper decline than the 80%. And the other thing, the other very important thing we have to do uh, is that every year in, uh, in June, we produce a progress report, which, uh, uh, which analyzes how the UK is progressing uh, towards net zero. Uh, and then the Adaptation Committee uh, has a slightly different role and slightly more complex in that although carbon budgets are set for the UK as a whole, um, most of our adaptation activities are for England only because a lot of that is a devolved competence for the devolved administrations. Um, but what we do is we prepare the evidence report for the five yearly climate change risk assessment that the government produces. Uh, and in response to its own risk assessment, the government then has to produce a national adaptation plan, which says over the next five years, how it is going to address the top risks to the UK from climate change. Uh, and every two years, uh, we do a joint report between both adaptation and mitigation. And on the adaptation side, uh, we look at progress uh, with, with the actions that the government has outlined in its uh, national adaptation plan. Uh, this year, the, the, the report we did in June this year should only actually have been a mitigation report. It should just have been how we're doing at reducing carbon emissions. But actually, we decided that um, addressing the uh, changes that the, cli the climate change is bringing is so important. And indeed, our progress on that has not been good at all in the UK, uh, that we would actually also provide uh, an, a bit of an update on on the adaptation as well. So normally every two years we would do a joint report between the two committee, two parts of the committee. Uh, this year it was a, an extra bonus that we uh, told the government uh, that it needed to do, to do more work on adaptation as well. And we in part did that because we thought the timing of the report was so critical in terms of the recovery from, um, from the COVID pandemic. Uh, and there are such important things we can do um, to make the UK more resilient, um, to improve nature, to do more on flood protection, those sorts of things. That actually, while, we were th while we're looking at what a, a green and resilient recovery looks like, we mustn't just focus on reducing emissions. We must also focus on preparing the country for the changes that are uh, sadly definitely going to come. Indeed. And, and am I right in thinking that this committee is entirely independent? So it's, it, 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 there isn't a it isn't a kind of offshoot of government, is it? You are yeah, no, an independent no, committee and you can hold government to account in quite a fierce way should that be needed. We're an independent committee and indeed most of our reports are for parliament rather than for government. But mm. of course, if the government asks us to do something as it did with the net zero report, then we will respond. But the carbon budgets, for example, and our annual progress reports, we present to parliament um, for parliament to discuss and, and indeed for Parliament to decide what it wants to do with them. So that's a sort of subtle but important distinction. Yes, we don't indeed. work for the government. No, and that's really crucial. So can I ask, I mean, obviously, when you started perhaps preparing the report and thinking about it, we were in that pre-COVID world because these things don't happen overnight. How mm. are we doing generally as a, as a nation against some of the, the aspirations and targets you, we'd set out? I mean, were we, were we on track or were we very much off track? Before the change to net zero, the, the critical carbon budgets were the, the fourth and the fifth one. 
and we were not on track to meeting our fourth and fifth carbon budgets. The one area where we have seen some outstanding progress actually has been decarbonizing our electricity generation um, and that progress continues. Sadly, the very good numbers you see about the UK having reduced its emissions by um, something like 40% since 1990 and being ahead of all the other G7 countries very significantly, almost the, the huge majority of that certainly in the last 10 years comes from decarbonizing our electricity system and indeed taking coal off the off the system. Uh, but in more recent times, also the big growth in, in renewables and particularly offshore wind. If we look at, uh, at the other very major areas for emissions, if we look at transport, uh, if we look at buildings, uh, we're really not making very much progress at all in those two areas. Um, for the last five years or so, they've been sort of bumping along pretty constant or with some very small um, increases or decreases. So we've got really big areas of, of the economy where we're not reducing emissions. Um, in some ways, we're hardly reducing emissions at all, and certainly not at the rate we're going to need uh, to meet even 80%. But now we've upped the bar and we're, we're going to meet, we've got to meet net zero. So we're going to need to see a lot more progress. We had seen um, a lot more policy announcements, I think, and uh, a number of good um, policy intentions coming out. So, for example, from the uh, Department for Transport, the, the move to stop the sale of fossil fueled light duty vehicles, including um, hybrids using some fossil fuel, by moving that from 2040 to 2035 and perhaps even earlier. Uh, and we've recommended 2032 in our, our latest uh, report. So we've seen some good announcements, but we haven't seen uh, very much action. That's often the way, isn't it, James? There's often, um, you know, a, a sort of a wash of policies and announcements, particularly when a, a new uh, government is elected or we have another target to reach. But it's the follow through, isn't it? It's the delivery of, of real actions that actually put us on the road to net zero and put us on the road to proper green, um, a green economy. Absolutely. And it's, uh, I think it's something that we see across uh, policy and across sectors, this, this need to to not be seen to be doing a supermarket sweep of uh, the the available policies that are that, that, that we can see on the shelves. It's about the alignments amongst those to make sure that the incentives are heading in the right direction, the, the right behaviours are prompted from our businesses, our our politicians, of course, but also our citizens. And ultimately, the you know, the big one of the biggest challenges around finance and, and how we can ensure that we get finance in into the um, into these sectors uh, working working for us, not not ultimately against us. And I think, you know, just to sort of uh, uh, congratulate um, you know, Baroness Brown and the Climate Change Committee on their on their report, because you know we've uh, I'm I'm one of those people who's who's followed this uh, this genesis from the from the Climate Change Act, and uh, you know the leadership that it brings. And the oversight that it brings is is uh, is, is extremely welcome, and um, particularly around you know, the recent changes. I think we, we can all agree everything's changed, and the six principles which um, the Climate Change Committee published in 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 April very much mirror our, our our own. So I'm an economist, so I was very much coming at it from the the environmental economic space, and I think uh, you know what we're what we're seeing here is this 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 co-challenge this double challenge of how do we um how do we avoid business as usual but at the same time 
deal with the with the challenges of, of data uncertainty, uh, not really knowing what we're what we're going to be what we're going to be facing. We do know that we're going to be facing potentially a lot of unemployment. We do know that that we need projects that that and you know I'm glad to say we've heard the government say that you know it's not going to go in for um, another. Uh, another period of austerity. So if the government is spending money, we know there are fantastic green projects that will create lots of jobs. We've had, the, we've had a, a group of the, um, of the nature-based NGOs uh, say, I think, that identify 300-plus nature recovery green projects. Uh, brilliant jobs for, for people to do, jobs that could be started very quickly, real feel-good jobs in a way for people to know they're making a difference. Uh, we know one of our biggest problems in reducing emissions is buildings, and we know that we have something like 27 million homes in the UK which are going to be need to be transformed to low-carbon heat. Uh, for the most part, that means they're first of all going to need to be much better insulated, and then they're going to need heat pumps or um, other kinds of electrical heating or potentially um, hybrid hydrogen heat pump systems somewhere somewhere down the line. Um, they're probably going to need much better control systems for all of this to minimize the cost to the inhabitants. But, but here's a chance to improve the quality of, of people's homes, to give them warmer homes in winter, um, in winter cooler homes in summer with uh, better shading to adapt to the, to the changing climate and better in- ventilation to give them better air quality. These, these are good quality jobs. If the government wants to start all these apprenticeships, then boy, you know, these are young apprentices who could be really think, feeling they're being trained to do, do jobs that will improve the quality of people's lives. And they're jobs that are needed all around the country. So they're going to be needed in large numbers in areas where, you know, we may have industries laying off people or um, travel industry laying off people. They're going to be needed everywhere. So these are the kind of things that it would be great to hear some really big government announcements about a big, big push on improving the quality of particularly our homes, but of our buildings across the UK generally. The worrying thing, I think, though, is then we hear, you know, a government talking about building its way out of recession. And yet the announcement is about knocking down office blocks and putting up new homes, avoiding, you know, some planning regulations, bypassing planning regulations. Those are sexy announcements saying that you're going to retrain some engineers to retrofit family homes with better insulation and alternative heat pumps as opposed to boilers. They're not terribly sexy. They're a bit more long term. They're a bit more grunty and nitty gritty. And I don't I don't get the sense why I absolutely agree with you. That's what we need to do. And we've talked about this on the pod a lot. We've talked about the transition to net zero. I don't I don't get the sense that that we have a we have the political impetus to actually grab that particular problem and say, this is where we should be focusing our kind of energy and our money on. You know, it's all about a big announcement. And am I wrong there, James? Is that, you know, am I being too pessimistic? Hopefully not. Um, but, or ho- hopefully you are. But, um, you know, I think as, as Baroness Brown will will appreciate or, or, or agree that innovative engineering isn't always pretty or sexy. And, you know, this is this is obviously one of the one of the many, the many challenges. And I think the the number of uh, great recommendations of these green jobs, so to speak, new green jobs post-COVID and pre-COVID. That that there's lots of evidence are out there. These are these are technologies which exist. Mm-hmm. District heating is a really good example of, of 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 a space where we in the UK could 
um, reduce emissions, we could retrofit houses relatively cheaply for good positive carbon dioxide um, emissions reductions. Uh, we could we could um, create lots of lots of jobs, and the and the the scalability issues are not um, are not something that uh, is a challenge. It's shown in, in countries like like Denmark that you need around seventy five thousand cubic meters of uh, of stored relatively warm water, um, which can be in typically in gravel pits for around two thousand homes. Now, those 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 figures might sound a little daunting, but uh, but, you know, these are these are, are local solutions to to quite difficult national national problems. And this was something I was particularly hoping to hear more about today, um, or at least a hint in that direction, shall we say. So, um, you know, we we particularly talk about uh, a profitable green recovery, and I, I I'd like to see that kind of language used because we we need the scalability that comes from the private sector. We need the incentives to be in the right direction to, to enable this to happen. And this was, this was acknowledged today. And I, I, you know, it's, uh, the Prime Minister mentioned several times that, that we should wait for further announcements from the Chancellor. And these are uh, you know, possibly leaving us with, with, with bated breath. The other thing that, of course, we, we're waiting for, and it's something that we're waiting for with bated breath, from, from the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy from Bayes, is, of course, their heat and building strategy. And, and that's long awaited now. And that's going to need to be a very strong strategy to address this really significant cha- challenge in terms of emissions. But the, the, I also think we desperately need to see some joined up government here. Um, because um, bays have buildings heating, MHCLG has um, have building regulations. Um, we need to see as we um, improve buildings to reduce their carbon emissions. We need to see, as I've said, that we need to make sure they're they're better ventilated and properly shaded, because they, even if we are on a path to 1.5 degrees, which I sincerely hope we will be, but if we are globally, um, then the 2018 summer that we had here will be a normal summer by 2050. 50% chance that that will be what every summer will be like by 2050. So we need houses that don't, and buildings that, that don't overheat um, in the summer. Uh, we also need buildings that don't use too much water. Here in Cambridgeshire, we're going to have lots and lots of new homes on the arc between London, Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, but we already suffer water shortages. Um, and if we go on using as much water per head uh, as we do in this country, then actually areas like this are going to be in really significant drought conditions by, by mid-century and certainly into the 2080s. Uh, and then there are, if you happen to be developing in an area that's prone to flooding, you should be thinking about at the same time, we should be thinking about putting in property level flood resilience measures to make sure those are more sustainable homes. So we need to be taking a holistic view of how we invest in, in, um, in property and buildings in the UK and not having separate departments focusing on, on separate issues and operating independently of each other. And that's exactly what we need. We need a holistic joined up view. I mean, this, you know, the first of the six principles is about using climate investment to support um, the economy and recovery and jobs. But, but so often, um, 
not just government, but private investors won't invest in projects of the kind you've been talking about because there's no certainty and regulations change and, you know, there's a lot of short-term thinking. And I, and, and I think we all know what the problems are, don't we? We all know what the challenges are. And we know what some of the solutions are. I mean, they're outlined in your report and they've been outlined by others. But, but, but we don't get a sense of this holistic joined up approach about anything very much from any of our government, not just the current government, but previous governments. I mean, holistic joined up thinking is not something that our government seem to be particularly good at. Um, so I'm just I'm, I'm slightly concerned that while we make these recommendations, we know what we need to do. Already we're in danger of just slipping back into our old ways. I mean, we just look at, you know, look at how people have been behaving as soon as lockdown you know, mm. was lifted very slightly. And um, we, we absolutely need to change people's behaviours as individuals and as communities, as well as as policymakers and leaders. And I'm not certain how we do that. I mean, how do we generate that that change? Because that's that's vital to this, when people have got to be prepared to spend more, you know, on the things that are going to make their homes more heat efficient and perhaps spend less on, on things that are polluting the planet and those are quite difficult decisions for families to make in times of economic pressure well I, I certainly think we need uh, we need one of the things we'd like to see the government looking more at is how do we start bringing in carbon taxes um, to make the, the the high carbon things more expensive and to enable us to make the low carbon solutions less expensive or to be enable us to provide the right sort of grant funding uh, in order to make them affordable for people um, because I must admit that at times during the pandemic, I thought perhaps we were starting to change a bit. I thought perhaps, you know, we were hearing uh, about how much people were valuing green space in cities. And you only had to drive through London, as I did a couple of times, to see how many people there were in Kensington Gardens, an area where there are vast numbers of, of flats. And that's the only green space people have to get out into. Um, and I, I was hoping that that might change people's ideas about a little bit about what was important to them. We've heard a lot about how much people have enjoying, been enjoying the clean air. And we know that, you know, green space in our cities, um, both we have trees that absorb the CO2. Um, it gives us, uh, it gives us uh, improved drainage because it enables when we have, uh, when we have flash flooding and we overwhelm the drains and we're going to get more of that with the kind of weather changes that, Climate change is going to bring it, gives somewhere for the for the water to soak away, so it reduces risk. Uh, it also has health benefits. It also has benefits in terms of clean air. I hoped that people would start to be, see that they really do value those things. And actually, if those things cost them a bit more, they'd be prepared to say, "I pay for that rather than something else." But I'm slightly worried that we're uh, the, the kind of desperation to get out of lockdown. Um, we're sort of losing some of those things and some of the what might have been the good things that could come out of it. Yeah, especially if for health reasons, you're encouraged not to go on public transport, mm. which as we know has a lower carbon footprint, but instead to get into your polluting vehicle and to drive to your place of work. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're giving people really mixed messages, aren't we? We're saying that we need to hang on to that. We've given the planet a pause. We've actually cleaned up the air. We've allowed mm. people to reconnect with their communities and with their environment. But then in the other breath, we say, but actually don't go on public transport, get in your car, do this, you know, and all of these things and working from home. I mean, the statistics out recently saying that our water, the per head water um, usage has shot up since people were working from mm. home. So we're shifting the problems around. We need a much more strategic approach to how we make these changes and put them in place. I mean, James, you've worked with governments and you've worked with NGOs. What, what are these sort of sorts of things that you're calling for, much as the report goes as some way towards helping, helping us with that? What else do we need to be doing? 
Yeah, so I, th I think I've got, I've got three points there. I think the first one is is recognizing what we've been talking about here is that we are we are having the steepest learning curve about sustainability for for governments and policymakers, businesses and citizens that that we've ever had, which we would hope is something that we can leverage. And we've you know I think we've we've outlined that previously. Um, and secondly, the, the business literature is littered with evidence that multidisciplinary, intercompany, international uh, pursuits in business and in uh, approaches to, to, to challenges are always better than those that are, that are solitary, that are, that are within disciplines. And I suppose we would, we can't, we, we would expect that anyway, but there's, there's a lot of evidence here. And, and yet when we, when we look at a lot of the environmental challenges, these are typically addressed in a in, in a relatively linear way and we need to we need to find ways of of embedding sustainability across the decisions that are that are made and, and and right now seems seems to me like the perfect opportunity not only is there is a lot of strong evidence here but also you know, um, evidence that that actually businesses citizens and governments are are, are willing to go down this pathway uh, we've got we've got numerous examples from um, from during during this uh, this initial lockdown period. But I think really my point of this second one here is about is 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 around collaboration. What does that conversation look like? What does it what does it take place? Uh, I think uh, to some extent the uh, climate change committee um, you know gives us gives us an example of, of of how you bring evidence and science to bear in in the political arena and and hopefully reflecting the. You know, the the diversity of opinions within within the UK, but again, how do we how do we bring citizens into that, and how, how do we do it meaningfully so that it's not another, you know, another sort of greenwash type of type of approach, which which we all know is not is not necessarily what we would like to what we would like to see. Um, and my you know my third my third point here is is really around around innovation because that was talked about quite a bit by the prime minister today and it's it's evidently a, a key plank of the UK's vision going forward that, that we should continue to lead in the climate change space and you know I know that that that's something I'm very passionate about and I think now is a great opportunity to to enable that to happen so for instance we should not only be the first country in the world to have a net zero legislation, but we should also be the first country in the world possibly to have a, you know, a profitable sustainability committee that, that operates at policy level that can actually help bring all of this together. Mechanisms like that are the sort of innovation that, I, that I'd, like to, I'd like to be hearing, hearing more of from a very practical viewpoint and also to, be, to, to enable businesses to get the signals and to be part of that conversation. Great to hear you talking about innovation in that very broad context and not innovation in the terms of new shiny bits of, of clever kit, because actually it is innovation in policy and innovation in financing. I mean, I, I, the, the thing that always frightens me when, when, when governments start talking about innovation, that, that they mean, or we had, I think Boris Johnson said that we were going to be the country with the, the first um, zero emissions long haul aircraft and and in a way that's the kind of innovation that puts off us having to do anything about aviation emissions because the silver bullet we're going to invent the silver bullet and i feel a little bit about like that about some of the you know some of the technologies that might take co2 out of the atmosphere 
Um, some of them, like trees, I'm brilliantly fond of. <laughs> but and peat some bogs. of them, <laughs> yeah, and peat and indeed wetlands and things, you know, mm. lots of nature solutions that will do that, which we need a lot more focus on, the mm. right kinds of solutions in the right places, of course. Um, but, but, you know, hanging on and hoping that uh, one of these, some of these carbon capture, some of this chemical sort of processing to, uh, capture the CO2 from the atmosphere and then store it, that that will get cheap enough to solve all our problems um, is not the right way to go about things. And that's sort of the innovation in policy, innovative ways to get us to change our behavior uh, is a really important aspect of innovation that, you know, doesn't, that doesn't get the label innovation often enough. We know that, that as individuals, we have huge control over this. We can all lead less polluting lives. We've been leaving less polluting lives, partly in an enforced way through lockdown, haven't we? Mm. Um, but, but I think there's some, I mean, I mean, I do have some concerns because we were hosting COP, you know, Conference of the Parties in, in November in Glasgow this year, and it's now been pushed back to 2021. But, but we weren't really on track for that. I mean, you know, there was, there wasn't, there didn't seem to be real consistent political leadership about who was appointed to, to lead the COP. We didn't seem to, although we were, you know, we'd set ourselves some targets around net zero, we didn't seem to have the real energy um, at policymaking at government level, and even perhaps in department level to make those changes. So I suppose I have to ask, Julia, how seriously do you think you know, the government, not parliament, but government will take your report. Now, I know it's a report to parliament and I know it's from parliamentarians and I know that MPs and, and peers will be discussing it and pushing on this. But but we, we need a government that's going to legislate and make the changes and push through some of these things and commit the money and make the resources available. Do you think they're really listening? I, I certainly there are there are some members of the of the um, cabinet who I talk to who are really listening. Um, and I sincerely hope that they had a climate cabinet last week, I understand. So I sincerely hope that they uh, had a good discussion and and uh, made some real commitments to work together to deliver some of this. I actually think it's very fortunate in a way that we have delayed the COP by a year because I think it does give us, gives government time to, uh, to get in place the things as you so much, as you say, it hadn't got in place, partly because we'd had all sorts of disruptions like a, an extra election and things um, in the... Uh, thrown in that it hadn't got in place and I think if we can get the sixth carbon budget into legislation in December this year that would put us in a very good position to be influential with other countries um, and so I'm, I'm hoping and I, and I also understand we've been the UK has been invited to chair um, a United Nations group on a global green and sustainable recovery um, you know, so I think the fact that we're accepting to do these things, I take as a sign that we must, we are intending to deliver. So I'm, I'm keeping positive about that. But I, think they, need, hopeful. <laughs> I think they need some help. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, do you think there are many parallels between our experience of COVID and the impact of this pandemic um, that we can draw for for how we might prepare for the, some of the risks that climate change present to us. I mean, James, this is a, you know, obviously a pandemic is very different from a climate emergency, but there are parallels in terms of the, the impact it has on our lives and the dangers that that we face in in, in not listening to the warning signals. Absolutely, and I think I think change change in itself is always something which which challenges challenges people and businesses, and it's uh, it's why. Um, why we why we why we often need uh, need government more than more than ever at this at, at this time. 
It does still concern me, though, that we're going to sleepwalk into, into some kind of a green rush for, for policy and solutions. It's going to be it's going to be shiny things um, like like Jet Zero, which uh, um, I learned about this morning from from the prime minister, which which sounds fantastic. But as uh, as Baroness Brown was, was was indicating, that's that's kicking the can down the road, which is which is really not what we should be not what we should be doing if we're genuine leaders. I would I would hope that uh, we could we could look at being more ambitious at this time, that we as a country could actually look at the potential to decarbonize and accelerate that. So when um, the prime minister and his cabinet are talking about project speed, they're actually talking about um, the, the, uh, the speed behind the green recovery. We know that that should mean more, more jobs, these are jobs which will enable us to level up. They will uh, they will be neatly dispersed around the country, and this is something where we as a, we as a country, from from all of the all of the polling that's been done, are very much as citizens behind this, and and, and our businesses as well. So it's something that um, you know we we are asking more from our citizens. That we're um, back to an earlier question. We're asking people to pay more. And our businesses, but that reporting has value, and it has value both commercially and economically. So very, very keen to see that, seeing that pushed forward, and for us not to enter another crisis of decision making around this, um, which is which is you know a, a space in which some some innovation and some some leadership would would be a fantastic way to sign off and uh, for 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 Glasgow next year. I sincerely hope that that what this one of the things this has brought home is that we need to plan for future risks and that we need to plan for future risk where the science is telling us this is going to happen. We may not know quite when, which was the, the pandemic uh, challenge. Uh, I Actually, though, if we look at the changes that are going to come with two degrees of warming or 1.5 to two degrees of warming, um, I almost feel that's not that we shouldn't really describe that as a risk anymore because we know that's going to happen. Um, the risk is that we get four degrees of warming, um, but we should be planning for, for two degrees or 1.5 to two degrees of warming as a best case. So I don't see that's, you know, that's, we should be treating that as, a, as the certainty, not the risk. And, and when we, in our, last, in our report last year, our last major report from the, uh, on, the, on the UK's preparedness for the changing climate, we're not yet seeing um, the majority of organizations and businesses planning for two degrees, let alone two degrees and a chance of four degrees. Um, nobody scored full marks on our, on our, you know, had they got a good plan which covered two and four degrees and were they making progress? You know, some areas did better than others, but nobody actually was, was looking well positioned. So I'm hoping that this has brought home to people that that, that planning is something that we have to do. Um, but I'm hoping that doesn't get forgotten in the... Uh, in the rush to to build the economy back, but you know some of that, some of the things we could be doing, um, we've already seen an, a very positive announcement of a while back of of doubling of the budget for the Environment Agency for both natural and and physical flood defence work. Um, that's a, a, an announced five billion. That's funding we could be pulling forward and creating jobs in in getting on with that faster than uh, than we were planning to. Um, and that's the kind of thing that, you know, inhabitants of, of places like Fish Lake um, would be very pleased to see, I'm sure. 
Yeah, and we have talked a lot on the pod about rewilding and community-based solutions. And I think that you yourself mentioned that, you know, there are NGOs that you've been working Mm. with who are keen to put these in place. Some of these are very low-cost interventions that we as communities and citizens can take responsibility for and empower ourselves to make the changes as well, rather than sitting back and waiting for, for governments to do and, that. So, And some of this, we need to make sure that in the in the, um, the new environmental land management system that's going to be brought in to replace the common agricultural policy, we need to make sure that that rewards farmers and land managers properly um, so that they are actually incentivized to do some of these things. So I think we need to look at how do we get blended finance in so that where people are doing things that have mitigation benefits like tree planting, they can be paid for the CO2 removal where they're, where they're able to do um, catchment level tree planting to help with flood prevent, prevention. Again, they can get payments for the, for, the, for the natural capital benefit they're delivering, but that they can also get payments through ELM because the kind of the, the scale of change that we need of our on our of our farmed environment in order to d- deliver net zero but also to deliver the adaptation benefits that we need to see is really very significant and we've got to make sure that there is enough incentive that farmers and land managers uh, are able to take these long-term decisions about making those changes yeah, absolutely. Not to mention our wild spaces and our moors mm. and all of the other places where we can actually make real change here. And and that's, I guess, is about encouraging and embedding fairness as in, into this whole conversation. Um, it's been a fascinating discussion. We should draw it to a close. But I just wanted to, to ask you, James, are there, is, what would your call for action be? Um, because we, we, we cannot let this slip by. This is a moment in time that we will hopefully never ever forget, have again. And we need to make sure that we make our calls for, for a green and resilient recovery loud and clear. So what would be your call to, to, to governments or to listeners or to businesses to, to take action? Yeah, I mean, our, our, our concern, my concern is that, is that we seek to return to business as usual. Um, and following an economic episode such as what we have right now whether it's a, um, a recession or a depression or whatever it's it what it will mean is that the the comeback is going to be longer it's going to be more polluting it's going to be worse for society and the relatively poor are going to be relatively poorer we we don't want to enter that situation it will it will do nothing for our reputation as a country it'll do nothing for for our society and, and frankly all the gains that we have been making Whereas I feel that the leadership opportunities here for the UK are significant um, and you know, the business case is there for a sustainable recovery, a profitable green recovery. And I, I'm very keen to see us take that and we'll, and we'll continue working towards that. Uh, I think just, just to echo from, from the work that we do with the private sector, they understand this very much as well. Yeah. This, has, this has not gone unnoticed by... By, by British companies, and a number of them are, are proving themselves to be innovators in this space. Um, construction is a good example. We maybe build, build, building, but we can, we can do that using circular economy principles and with the right kind of investment and the right kind of technology. Um, this is something that, that we could, again, be another, another leader in. And, uh, you know, so I think there's, there's, there's too many opportunities, I, I feel, and hope, to let this opportunity, which was born out of a terrible situation, pass. Yeah, absolutely. We had a guest on the pod recently who said, "Where business leads, government will follow." So let's hope that that, that you know our, our colleagues in the business sector have heard that that message loud and clear. 
my huge thanks to you both, to my guests, Aroness, Julia King, and to James McGregor. So thank you for sharing your thoughts and your calls to action. That's really important. And um, my thanks, as always, to my producer, Jim Haywood, who's still valiantly editing and producing the podcast, despite being denied his beautiful studio. Um, thank you to Planet Pod listeners. Do keep in touch with us. You can tweet us at planetpod or email us on beth at theplanetpod.com or visit the website theplanetpod.com where you can download previous episodes and subscribe to the pod. If you listen on a podcast app, we'd be really grateful if you take a moment or two to rate and review the pod because it helps us and we appreciate your feedback and support. Thanks again to my guests, to Julia and to James. Thank you. Well, thank you. And let's hope we can make a difference. And goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.